Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Q&A, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Sebastian Thrun Fast Company calls you the fifth most creative person in business. Foreign Policy Magazine calls you the global thinker number four. What exactly do you do for a living? Ah, that's vastly exaggerated. But I had the pleasure to serve as a professor at Stanford University for more than a decade. I've created a few companies here in Silicon Valley. And for a few years, I worked at Google as a VP, studying Google X. What do you study? What do you look at? I look at people with a different lens. I believe that most interesting things have not been invented yet. I believe that the last 150 years of humanity have been transformative. They invented almost everything that matters today, from light switches to running water in toilets, all the way to airplanes and cell phones. And that's just the beginning. So I really care about what technologies can we invent in the future that improves the human condition, makes us better people. So there are a lot of unknown unknowns out there, right? That is true, but we see trends. We see trends towards digitization towards connecting people, towards smart machines. And those trends, uh, I think, lead to easy predictions. Sebastian Thrun, you've been quoted as saying that machine learning is the core of what I do. What does that mean? What does that mean? Machine learning is a technical word, often also called artificial intelligence, that just stands for the idea that computers can program themselves. Just uh, consider how you raise a child when you raise a child, you're not given give them a rule for like every possible situation in life. Children kind of train and teach themselves their own rules and their own behavior based on your feedback. In computer science, however, until now, a software engineer had to really write down step by step what a computer ought to do. The computer was stupid. The software engineer was smart. And that is just changing right now. So right now we have a set of technologies where computers can teach themselves and find their own rules just based on data with very minimal input from the side of software engineers. Well, maybe we should start at the beginning and have you identify a few terms for us in, in ways that we can understand. And let's begin with a big one, computer science. How do you identify that? About 50 years ago, a computers got to a point where more than just a handful of people could program them. A computer program is effectively 
think of it as like a kitchen recipe, like put the salt in, boil the water, pour the eggs in, wait five minutes. That's a computer program. That's a bit more complicated. Computer science became the discipline of computer programming. And it sounds a bit bizarre that there should be a discipline for computer programming. But just picture this, a modern cell phone has 15 million lines of code. That's a big, big, big recipe. And there's principles behind this, how to organize the code. And as a computer scientist, you learn about these principles to make the code better. Algorithms. Algorithms is like a funny word. Uh, algorithm is just <laughs> a word for a kitchen recipe. Whenever you write down three or four things in sequence, you build what's called an algorithm. There's nothing with Al Gore. <laughs> Deep learning. Deep learning. Um, think of it the following way. When I was a grad student a long time ago, I was working on the exact same AI machine learning as people like OpenAI work on today. But it didn't have the impact because the brains I was able to build, given the compute resources at the time, were of the size of a cockroach. And even if you build a perfect cockroach, it's not that impressive. By having faster computers, faster networks, what's called Moore's Law, the thing that makes things grow exponentially fast in the last decade, it became possible to move from the brain of a cockroach to the brain of a person. And that, that thing of building just more data, bigger machines, that's commonly referred as deep learning. Sebastian Thrun, how do you identify singularity? Singularity is the idea that things accelerate so much so far, you won't be able to see what, what, what happens on the other side. And I would argue, I would argue we are in the middle of a singularity today. We see so much change, so much innovation, even for the wiser of us, it's impossible to say where it's leading us. But it's exponentially accelerating. It's exponentially accelerating. It's a, it's a technical term. Look at, look at uh, fancy me for a second, look at humanity. We are 300,000 years old, give and take, as people. And yet almost everything that we cherish, um, literally, I mean, stuff that you wouldn't even believe as a mention, like, I don't know, open heart surgery, uh, the discovery of the DNA, uh, the use of the DNA using CRISPR. These are things that all happened in the last 50, 80, 150 years. Um, that is an exp exponential acceleration. It means all of a sudden we've become much more creative as people, much more investigative, insightful, and, and inventive. And that, that acceleration is accelerating today. It's like getting faster today as I speak. That's what, what I would call a singularity. Well, let's talk about the term of the year, artificial intelligence. What's the definition of that? That term was invented in 1956. Um, by a researcher back then at, at MIT, then at Stanford, with the an inspiration to give computers the same level of intelligence as people have. We are, as people, are intelligent, it's undoubted, we build amazing stuff, we can do amazing things. So why not make a computer that can do the same thing? 56, uh, 1956, that's almost 70 years ago, it was the belief that what made intelligence so special was logical reasoning, was the ability to prove theorems, to do modus ponens, all the stuff that's mathematically hard to do. Basically, your eight-class math lesson on a computer was undervalued at the time. Uh, was instinct. 
or was the ability to, I know, open your eyes and recognize your grandmother. Um, but still, despite those shifts in attention, the core of AI is really the, the question of artificial intelligence is how can we make computers as smart as people and possibly even smarter? Sebastian Thrun, it seems in a sense that it's been all of the sudden that artificial intelligence has become part of our lives. Is that is that correct or does it just seem that way? Look, we're in the middle of a big football game and someone just scored a touchdown. We all talk about it. It's been exhilarating the last, whatever, 15 months, us talking about artificial intelligence. But the truth is, this stuff was with us long before. Like, for example, take Google. When you Google something, then Google simultaneously goes to hundreds of billions of web pages to find that one page or those 10 pages that are most informative to you. It doesn't look and feel like AI, but it is artificial intelligence. It's massive data crunching of AI. AI has been with us in many, many, many other aspects. Like for example, things you'll never recognize. If you speak into your cell phone, the fact that relatively good language comes on the other side is the result of very, very long and interesting artificial intelligence. So it's, it's part of the fabric, but it's not the fabric where it's kind of taking over, where it's like, like endangering jobs, like threatening jobs and so on, the way it feels today, but it's been with us for quite a while. Well, just a little bit more about our guest, Sebastian Thrun. He is the founder or co-founder of several companies, including Google X, which is involved in research and development, Waymo, the self-driving cars, Google Brain, Kitty Hawk, which is about flying vehicles, Udacity, online learning, Cresta AI, and Sage AI Labs are two of his newest endeavors. What do those two operations do, Mr. Throne? In Cresta, uh, a company is about five years old at this point, we really asked the question, can we build AI to make people stronger? And we focused on what's called call centers or contact centers, the type of people you talk to when you don't like your plane reservation or your, your internet subscription doesn't work. And we found that in that world of online agents of like people who help you solve problems or sell your products, that a good experienced person is about four times as good as a novice new person. And we asked the question, can we build AI to watch these experienced people do their job really well and then assist new people doing their job better, faster? Can we build experts on day one by having an AI extract from the smart and experienced people what they do and impute this into the brains of the novices? And it turns out the answer is yes. There's been a recent study by MIT and Stanford that made it to the news that showed that there's a 13% improvement from day one if you have a coach on your side that's built on artificial intelligence, that's learned from wise sage people what to do and assist you do your things better. That, that is a proven success of AI. The AI becomes the mediator to bring knowledge from smart, good people to everybody else. So what does AI in general do better than humans, and what do humans do better than AI? AI can crunch through very, very large data sets. 
and do this faster than people can do it. Uh, when there is a regularity in large data, um, AI has an upper hand. Very famous moments of artificial intelligence are those moments in 1997 when an AI computer beat the world's residing chess champion, Gary Kasparov. And that happened because the AI system was able to look at a million more chess games and chess moves than a person could possibly do. And AI can actually go through data faster. The same happened in 2018 when an AI system, Deep by Deep Mind, beat the world's leading Go player. Go is particularly interesting because it's a very complicated game with many different move options. It's very hard to write computer software for Go. But an AI system was able to study Go and come with a solution that beat the sitting strongest human Go player. And that's just the beginning. An AI system for today, for example, uh, called Google, can go through hundreds of billions of websites and to your query, find the one that matches your query the best. Now, that's exactly the limit of AI too, which is AI needs these massive amounts of data. It needs massive amounts of data. It needs so much more data than people ever look at. If you just train AI with the same data that a single person would watch, there's no chance. It is very data hungry and it only works really well in domains with lots and lots of data. Sebastian Thrun, you're talking about data, but that's information about you and I and everyone else, isn't it? Yeah, the society has a lot of public data, all the books we write, all the things we publish on the web. And yes, while it's personalized data, it's often data that has general utility. For example, in Waymo that I built, we use data of test drivers that drive cars to public streets and experience situations that a driver would normally experience and then feed all that data into a big AI computer to generate safe driving controls. Back to the list of companies or some of the companies that you founded or co-founded, I want to ask, how were these funded and are these profit-making enterprises today? Look, um, one of the great ways uh, here in Silicon Valley and I think now worldwide is that when you have a good technical idea, you can often find an investor who's willing to bankroll the development of the idea. Every good idea begins, at least in my world, with some sort of technology that can solve an important problem. And before there's a business, you have to build up a technology war chest, something like um, the technology that allows you to build the business. Like for example, in self-driving cars, it took us more than 10 years of training these self-driving cars to be safe enough that we could now legally charge riders a fare and open the public, open up to the public and have the public pay for it. So that investment phase um, has been very, very active in the last 30, 40 years. It led to Amazon, it led to Google, it led to uh, Apple, it led to all the big companies that we know today. Are they making money? Your Some enterprises. Are. Some are not. Um, my enterprise, uh, Udacity, which is a worldwide education company, where we bring Silicon Valley information to anyone in the world, is actually profitable at this point and cash flow positive. Um, others, like my brand new, somewhat stealthy startup, Sage, you mentioned, I think it's the first public mention I've heard, is still in the process of building up technology and charges so far zero dollars. But how, how is that funded? Are you self-funding it? Often I start self-funding, but 
there's something called a venture capital. Venture capital is kind of a bank that specializes in finding young talent and new ideas and helping them build a team and build the first technology and test the technology in the market. Um, typically in Silicon Valley, you raise what's called a few million dollars. That sounds like a lot of money, but it's not as much when you employ 20 software engineers to build it for you. And then you go and test it in the market and see whether customers are willing to pay for it. I want to read a quote to you from Corey Doctorow, the author and technology critic, and get your response to this. Today, Morgan Stanley wants you to know that AI is a $6 trillion opportunity. They're not alone. The CEOs of Endeavor, BuzzFeed, Microsoft, Spotify, YouTube, Snap, Sports Illustrated and CAA are all out there pumping up the AI bubble with every hour that God sends, declaring that the future is AI. But even if you add all of this up, double it, square it, and add a billion dollar confidence interval, it still doesn't add up to what Bank of America analysts called a defining moment, like the internet of the 90s. For one thing, the most exciting part of the internet in the 90s was that it had incredibly low barriers to entry and wasn't dominated by large companies. Indeed, it had them running scared. The AI bubble, by contrast, is being inflated by massive incumbents whose excitement boils down to, quote, this will let the biggest companies get much, much bigger and the rest of you can go F yourselves, some revolution. That's Corey Doctorow. Sebastian Thrun, what do you think about that? Well, first, I didn't say that. And there's a number of things in there. Let me unpack those uh, a little bit sequentially here. First, there's a belief that AI will be transformative as in, in the trillions of dollars. Um, I actually of the belief that that potential exists. Um, I would go back um, and look at the effect, uh, the steam engine, um, I don't know, nitrogen fertilization, certain chemical inventions had on agriculture in the last 150 years. 150, 200 years ago, almost everybody worked in farming and a farmer could make food for four people, AKA their family. Now a farmer can make food for 400 people. That has massively changed the world. Um, if we can make people a hundred times as efficient in their mental daily office work, it's gonna have the same effect. So I'd be careful to take a strong position uh, on the size of the impact, but the potential exists. Um, the second thing I hear Corey say here is that it's the big companies will make all the money. And you know what? I just don't believe that's the case. Um, it's always been the case when new technology innovations came along, new companies came up. Now these companies will eventually come big, um, but it's not by definition that the existing big companies will win. For example, OpenAI, last I checked, is a startup company with about what, five, six hundred people at this point. But back in the day when they pushed ChatGPT, they were less than 300 people. It was not Microsoft or Google. In fact, Google sat on the same technology for quite a while, but OpenAI popularized it. Second, if you're in the weeds of this innovation right now, the way I am, you see a lot of what's called open source teams that build open source models. What does it mean? It means that companies are giving away every element of it. Um, Meta has done it. There's now a company, an entity 
in uh, not sorry in, in UAE in the United Arab Emirates in Abu Dhabi that has built really powerful models. We're just seeing the beginning of an evolution that seems much more democratized than many other technologies before, similar to the way the World Web worked. Um, again, I think we are a bit in the singularity. It's easy to speculate, easy to make very contrastive statements. Um, let's be open-minded, but the potential that this will majorly disrupt all of us really exists. Well, it was back in May that Sam Altman of OpenAI testified in Congress. Here's a little of what he had to say, and we'll get Sebastian Thrun's reaction. I agree that when we get to very powerful systems, the landscape will change. I think I'm just more optimistic that we are incredibly creative and we find new things to do with better tools and that will keep happening. Um, my worst fears are that we cause significant, we, the field, the technology, the industry, cause significant harm to the world. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. Uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. But we, we try to be very clear-eyed about what the downside case is and the work that we have to do to mitigate that. Sebastian Thrun. What I really admire about Sam is his willingness to really reach out across, when I say the aisle, it's the aisle between Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C., uh, to policymakers, to world decision makers, to world leaders, and really build a team with them to figure out what the implications are. And I think the statement is correct that this is going to impact all of us. It's not just a game for technologists. It's a game for everybody, and everybody deserves a seat on the table. Humanity has built technologies that, if they go wrong, can go horribly wrong. Look at biological warfare. Look at nuclear weapons. Um, and we as societies so far have done a pretty good job to protect ourselves against massive, massive disasters we could be creating with these technologies. Most of these technologies also have a positive side, like biotech has a very strong uh, positive side in product development, in medicine. Nuclear obviously is an amazing energy source if handled correctly, and I believe we should have more of it, not less, that's my personal belief. Um, and I think AI should be the same thing. It should be a, a, a source for the good of people, and we should be very well aware of the dangers. Now, I'm generally an optimist, because I'm sure you've noticed by now, but I do see some very immediate danger that I want to alert people to, and I've written about, uh, which is deep fakes. We are now at a place where we can create a video of a person that is indistinguishable from reality, and that's going to be tricky because bad actors can use this to pretend crimes that didn't exist or, I don't know, all kinds of stuff that people will believe in falsely. So for us to keep an understanding what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's not true, is going to become a challenge going forward. Well, we cheated a little bit here at C-SPAN, Mr. Thrun, and we went on some AI chatbots and we asked the chatbot to ask you questions. We went to OpenAI and got some questions. We had to go one step further and say, okay, how about some critical questions for Sebastian Thrun? 45 seconds later, we had four sheets of paper with specific questions for you. And this is one from Google's Bard AI chat. And it, we asked again a critical question for Sebastian Thrun. The first thing this machine said to us, 
and again, 45 seconds from typing it in to a piece of paper in my hand, it said, now remember, Sebastian Thrun is a fascinating and accomplished individual with a wealth of knowledge and experience. By asking thoughtful and engaging questions, you can get valuable insights into his perspectives on AI, education, and the future of technology. So here's one of the questions that Bard from Google came up with. Thrun often expresses optimism about the potential of AI to benefit society. However, critics argue that automation could lead to job displacement and exacerbate economic inequality. How does Thrun address these concerns and advocate for policies that mitigate the negative impacts of AI? It's a wonderful question and I really thank you for adding the word critical. Um, it's still a software question for me in the following sense. <clears throat> I believe that AI will is not a zero-sum game. I think it's a it's a technology that will make life better for many, many, many people. And I give you two examples from my own life. One is Waymo. Waymo cars now take passengers here in San Francisco, hundred percent safe. They will this technology will ultimately lead to fewer traffic deaths. Just to remind a C-SPAN viewer, we lose about 1.2 million people a year in traffic accidents. So it's a significant number of people. It used to be the leading cause of death for young people in the States until drugs took over. Um, so that's something where I think if just having this technology in your car will really serve everybody, not just a small number of people. Um, with that example, a second example I give you, we did work at Stanford in medical diagnostics, we trained AI to recognize skin cancer with your iPhone or your Android phone. And we found that a well-positioned phone can find skin cancer as accurately as the best human doctors. This made the cover of Nature magazine a few years ago, has a big impact on medicine. And it shows that AI can help the medical field to bring diagnostics uh, to a much broader set of patients. To remind everybody on this C-SPAN panel, in North America, skin cancer is cancer number one in terms of numbers. And melanomas can go from completely benign, where I can remove them with a the kitchen knife at home, to deadly in less than a year. They're brutal and they're deadly. Um, the reason why I mentioned those is um, the outcome of AI, if done well, will increase wealth. It will save us time. It will give us time back. It'll give us more time to vacation, to spend weekends with our family. And if you don't believe that, look back in the last 50 years and see what technology has done to us. Words like vacation and weekend didn't exist three, 400 years ago, and now they're common language. That doesn't mean everything is easy. I think we do have to worry about distribution and make sure this technology really reaches everybody. And that's the funniest song and dance we have in the United States that I love so much. We have a free market economy where people who get to invent and then innovate have a level of ownership. And the level of ownership has proven to be useful, in my opinion. And I say this as a former German who grew up right at the border of East Germany, where that ownership did not exist. And we saw what the effect was on the society. 
But yeah, I think having this dialogue is important. Having a dialogue, a broad dialogue, how can the benefits of AI be reaped so everybody benefits is a really important dialogue. And I, I have deep faith in that we're going to get there. I have deep faith that technology in the end democratizes access and really helps everybody. But that's my optimism. Sebastian Thrun, you referred earlier to Sam Altman as Sam. Is Silicon Valley a bit of a small village for those of you who work in it? It is a bit. Uh, and it's interestingly enough populated by lots of people who didn't grow up here. Like I'm German, I'm a, a pesky immigrant. Uh, Sergey Brenner is Russian. Many people here um, are coming out of Silicon Valley and, and finding a home here. What makes us a bit different is there's an unfettered optimism here about technology. It really exists. And there's a willingness to think outside the box and try things out. Now, many, many things we try in Silicon Valley fail. For every successful big startup company, for every OpenAI, for every Microsoft, for any Google, there's probably 10,000 companies that fail. And most of us only get to see the successful one, not the misery of all that failure. But that search, that ability, the willingness to get up on your feet again, each way, do it again, and try to find something that makes the world a better place is very unique to Silicon Valley. A level of intensity I have not seen anywhere else in the world. This is a Sebastian Thrun quote about Silicon Valley. Failure, it is frequently said, is an accomplishment, something Silicon Valley celebrates. But to me, just focusing on failures is missing half the story. It's not failure that makes us special. It's our ability to iterate quickly. It's fast failure. It's the willingness to stick out your neck, take a risk with a purpose of learning something. Smart learning and fast recovery is as important as fast experimentation. The end effect is what I consider truly the secret of Silicon Valley, an incredible iteration speed. It's a launch, fail, learn, relaunch. I have seen this over and over again. Whoever minimizes the duration of each iteration wins. I, I couldn't add any, anything to that. What's a typical day like for you? Um, typical day. <laughs> now, starts with changing diapers right now, which I do enjoy. I have two small children. Um, but a lot of... Um, work that I personally do is um, empowering my teams that I work with. And I do this um, by setting a vision of something that's incredibly hard to attain, but it was attained would be transformation for the world. And then providing a safe space to experiment how to reach this vision. My best analog I could give to a lay person is Imagine you find yourself in the middle of the Himalayas and none of the mountains have ever, ever been climbed. Go back a hundred whatever years and you're the first one you're uh, Sir Edward to, uh, to, to climb Mount Everest. Um, how would you do this? Uh, you can't pick up a book that says, here's how we climb a mountain. Um, you gotta take some chances. And as you climb, uh, you take your best guess where to make progress and every day's when you reach a false summit where you have to return, that's the failure and learning from failure. Hopefully you're never going to climb that same false summit again. There's days when the weather is bad, you can't even see the peak of the mountain. You have to believe it's still there. You have to go on faith sometimes to so just go and go and go. 
And in the end of the day, to, to really climb this mountain, you have to have endurance. You have to basically set one foot next to the next foot. There's no shortcut. You just have to do it. To me, finding this route to this imaginary mountain that's never been climbed before is the same as starting a successful company. Uh, you find yourself a great team of people. You set the vision, say, here's the mountain you want to climb. It's better be a good mountain, like in Waymo's case, like free the world from, from traffic accidents and build self-driving cars. But then the next step you realize is with all your arrogance to pick this incredibly audacious mountain, you actually have no clue how to get there. So you got to be a first grader again. You have to have what's called a growth mindset. You have to be willing to make every mistake. And the only rule I have in my own organizations is you can make every mistake, but please only make every mistake once. Don't make it twice. Sebastian Thrun, you've mentioned your teams. What do you look for in a hire? Do they have to be a computer scientist? What? There's a certain skill set that I usually need um, for people. Um, it's becoming less important today now that skills are more fuzzy. Um, typically in, in, in early stages, uh, the ability to write software is an important part of it. Uh, but the most important interview question I every, ask every single person interview, and most people dodge, is um, ask him, like, tell me something you did really, really well you're proud of in the last whatever 12 months, and everybody has a long story. And then I say, hey, give me something you really screwed up. Like, tell me something you did wrong. And you'd be amazed how few people can answer this question. Like, I do something wrong every day. Oh my God. Um, really bad things every single day. Um, when people come to me and have no answer to the question, tell me something you did wrong in the last year, it kind of signals to me that the person is not as self-reflective as I want them to be. Um, to learn, to learn from your mistakes. First of all, I believe all of us make mistakes. Maybe you see spend listener an exception, but every person I've met in my life makes mistakes, get things wrong. But to learn from it, you have to have this attitude to say, yeah, let me reflect on my mistakes. And if you reflect on your mistakes, in my belief, you should be able to produce an answer to that question. It's amazing how many people tell me of a mistake that their boss made and they had to fix and how amazing they are, they fixed their boss's mistake. That's the person I would not hire. Kind of like machine learning in a sense. We have to learn I from our mistakes. Learning. I want to quote- It's amazing how humanity our drive in humanity is exclusively based on our collective willingness to make mistakes and learn from mistakes. In aviation, every aspect of an airplane reflects a prior crash where this thing was missing and someone died. I'm not making this up. There's books written about this. Um, in society, the scientific revolution, when we sit together and do science, it's all about an experiment that gets validated or invalidated. And we report those findings openly to ourselves to learn from those scientific mistakes. That's what drives humanity, that drives machines. That is the biggest power that nature has ever invented. I want to quote Brad Smith, Microsoft president, now the vice chair, from his book, Tools and Weapons from 2019. This will require that those who create technology come not only from disciplines such as computer and data science, but also from the social and natural sciences and humanities. If we're to ensure that artificial intelligence makes decisions based on the best that humanity has to offer, its development must result from a multidisciplinary process. 
As we think about the future of higher education, we'll need to make certain that every computer and data science scientist is exposed to the liberal arts, just as everyone who majors in the liberal arts will need a dose of computer and data science. Amen. This quote makes me really happy. At Stanford, I've been fighting for a long time to bring together humanities students and computer science students, because at the core, we're dealing with big societal things. And it's sometimes our cultures that make us drift apart and unable to talk to each other. But this is the time where all of us have to talk, where all students have to have all those skills. And humanities and social sciences are extremely important. They're extremely important because at their core, they care about people, they care about us, they care about the impact of technology on people. When you go back and look at humanities, it's actually history of technology. The book, the poem, the, the broadcast. Now, luckily film is recognized as a, as a discipline. Film are all at the core driven by technology. So is arts, so is uh, performing art, so is uh, sculpture, so is, is, is painting art. These uh, things that go hand in hand with technology has always been the case that technology has influenced these things. We need, we urgently need a dialogue, a deep dialogue between all disciplines, humanities, social scientists, history, politics, whatever, and technology to really shape this future to the best of us all. I really deeply believe this and I love the quote you read, Peter. Well, one of Sebastian Thrun's early victories was winning the DARPA Grand Challenge. A self-driving car named Stanley won a $2 million prize. Mr. Thrun, in 2016, I had the opportunity to ride in a self-driving car in Pittsburgh, connected to Carnegie Mellon University. I felt like I was moving from the horse and buggy era to the uh, automated era for the first time. It was a little disconcerting to be in that vehicle are these things ready for prime time? Well, you know, <laughs> dangerous to talk a person with a memory. 2005, when many of your listeners were probably still children, um, we had a race that was organized by the US government. They have an, an office called DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, which little known to people is behind things such as the internet, and stealth bombers and other inventions. And they laid out the price money for someone who could build a robotic car, a self-driving car that could drive itself effectively from Las Vegas um, to uh, Los Angeles through the Mojave Desert. It wasn't quite that route, but it was about 140 miles. The car had no driver inside and had to just make life or death decisions for, in our case, almost six hours. It was an incredible geeky race <laughs> attended by myself and Larry Page and a few other friends who got together thinking, wow, this might at some point influence the world. But it wasn't anywhere at the level uh, where we are today. Um, fast forward 2005, DARPA Urban Challenge. There was a follow-up race called DARPA Urban Challenge. 2009, the founding of what's called the Google Chauffeur Project that led to Waymo, became Waymo, and today Waymo. Today, you can actually, with your phone, summon a Waymo in San Francisco it's 100% safe. You get into the car, there's no one inside, no driver inside. Like magically the steering wheel turns and it keeps you safe, as safe as a human driver would and even safer. Are you comfortable with that now, taking a Waymo? Oh, 100%. I've been comfortable with this for the decade. 
even 10 years ago, myself driving car would drive from San Francisco, Lake Tahoe and back very quietly. No one knew about it, but I was sitting there enjoying the ride. Well, one of your other companies was Kitty Hawk, which I read recently, I think, shut down. This was about flying cars. Are they going to happen in our lifetime? Kitty Hawk sold uh, a majority of his assets to Boeing, and the company is now called Whisk, and it's very alive. The idea is uh, it's actually very simple. Um, <laughs> goes back to the Jetsons. What if your car could fly? What if you had a little button that made the car levitate 500 or 1,000 feet up in the air, go in a straight line to where it has to go and land? Um, thanks to advances in electric propulsion in batteries, like the stuff we find inside a Tesla, it's now feasible to build these vehicles and have them fly about 100 miles on a single charge. So you can fly 100 miles on a single charge. And that's actually quite interesting because in the future, I firmly believe that most transportation will be airborne. We will have a vehicle that we hop onto that will lift you up and then get around all the obstacles on the ground, all the trees and houses and traffic lights on a straight line where you have to go and with a safer, faster and greener, more energy efficient than ground transportation in cars. That's gonna happen. It's gonna happen in the next 10, 15 years. Sebastian Thron, have you been in a flying car? Oh yeah, of course I have. Where it's did super you go? Fun. Where did you go? We did a training camp where we um, tested them um, over a place called Lake Las Vegas. We tested them over a lake because we weren't quite certain that these things were safe enough. And our fear was something went wrong, we at least land in water as opposed to concrete and take a swim. But nothing went wrong. So we were able to uh, make, I think, in the order of 25,000 test flights of these vehicles very successfully. If I wanted to fly one of those, how long would it take me to train? There's a whole bunch of companies right now that seek what's called airworthiness certification. Uh, we just saw in the news uh, with Boeing a part of the plane breaking off. The FAA, of course, is very concerned about the safety of these systems and to get uh, permission to fly them legally over cities or other people. It requires a stamp of approval called airworthiness certification. And the leading companies are probably calling three, four years away from that is my guess maybe two years, maybe five years, depending on who you believe. I want to switch gears just a little bit with you, Mr. Thrun, and talk about military use of technology and AI. Jeffrey Hinton, who is called the godfather of AI, believes that autonomous military robots should be banned worldwide. He said that on 60 Minutes in October. What do you think? I think it's the right perspective. I want to point out there's a lot of autonomous weapons out there today. They're called landmines. They're being thrown out by somebody and they, they can sit on the ground for decades and still kill people. It's a massive problem today. And just that lesson should teach us autonomous weapons. Landmines are autonomous weapons, should not be legal. It's important that there is ethics involved, even in warfare, in my opinion. I wish a war existed without warfare. That's not the case. I think warfare exists, but even there, there should be ground rules and crossing the border to completely autonomous weapons 
is a massive mistake. And the reason why is we might just have no control anymore what they're going to do. We might not be able to stop them. We might not be able to hold them back. The same way we are not able to stop all these landmines that exist today. Uh, that's a massive mistake. Do you consider artificial intelligence technology to be corporate or state secrets, perhaps? I think technology wants to be free. The secrets behind uh, these big AI systems are all public, incredibly public at this point, and that's good for the world. I want to remind everybody, even though we call it AI, it's actually not an intelligent being. It's not a system that takes responsibility for its action. It's a tool. It's like a shovel. It's like a shovel lets us dig faster. That's to the present moment and should always be in the control of people. And so as long as it's in control of people, people will use it for good purposes or bad purposes. They might even abuse it. And then we should put those people in jail. But we should never cede control entirely to these machines. But isn't there a lot of theft, intrigue, espionage in Silicon Valley? There's a lot of theft, intrigue, and espionage around the world, and there always has been. And lucky to us, freedom of information makes it harder to be a criminal. Uh, I live in a country that I choose to live in called the United States of America. I'm a very proud, naturalized citizen. And one thing I love about the United States is our general tendency to be fairly transparent about people and business and so on. We have a Freedom of Information Act that lets us get information that otherwise is private into the public domain. That's very unique in the world. And that really helps us understand and put limits as to what government can do. I'm a big fan. I believe transparency among people is a positive force that will make it harder and harder for criminals to be criminals. Growing up in Germany, were your parents scientists? Were you exposed to what you work on today? No, my parents were engineers. My mother was a stay-at-home engineer. My father was a struggling engineer who built a number of companies that didn't work out, uh, unfortunately. So I, I, I was exposed to lots of hard work. Um, the, the thing in Germany that rubs me the wrong day wait, to the present day, and I apologize to all the German listeners, is, is this innate, deep skepticism that Germans tend to have. Like when you go there and say, here's a great idea, often the very first question is, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with you? Um, there's a very deep techno-skepticism and innovation skepticism in most of Europe that you don't find the same way here in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley is young enough that people are still super optimistic, sometimes naive optimistic like myself. And I love this optimism. Well, we talked a little bit about the ethics of artificial intelligence, but recently Pope Francis called for a binding global treaty on artificial intelligence, lauding its potential benefits while presaging its raw potential for destruction. When it comes to that type of thing, accountability, regulation, do you agree with Pope Francis? I adore Pope Francis for many reasons. I think it's a bit too early to have strong regulations today. The way I look at law and regulations is it often precedes uh, certain events where we see a form of abuse that we don't like, and then we put a law in place to make sure that that abuse doesn't happen again. I think lawmakers generally are struggling right now to understand where to draw the line. Italy, for example, when ChatGPT came out, illegalized ChatGPT entirely. 
um, the Ottoman Empire actually illegalized the printing press entirely. Um, these, I, I want to be very thoughtful as to what the actual abuse is and really think about how can we put a lock against the specific abuse. And so the present day, for most parts, the technology is so incredibly young that we haven't seen much abuse. Recent headline, Sebastian Thrun. This was in Publishers Weekly. The New York Times sues OpenAI Microsoft for copyright infringement. They are suing over unauthorized use of its intellectual property in the training of artificial intelligence technologies. Are there legitimate fair use issues at work here? This is a point where I unfortunately have to take the fifth. <laughs> I, I can fully understand the concern behind this. Uh, it's definitely a fact that AI systems have been trained on copyrighted material. It's going to be an interesting societal question to see where it ends up. Is it going to be more along the lines of the internet, uh, where providers are not responsible for the information that they distribute? Or is it going to be more traditional, where providers with big AI systems have to remunerate and pay for every piece of copyright information? It's a big open question. If I had a wish, I do believe there's real value in producing high quality content. And I think when this high quality content is being used for something, the people producing it should be reimbursed and, 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 and get something back in return. I think if we can cannibalize everyone's work in the creative space, we will run out of people producing high quality content. Well, so in that sense, see me side with the journalists at this point. Well, Francesco Marconi, who is CEO of Applied XL, did not take the fifth. And here's what he wrote in the Wall Street Journal about media and AI. Beyond reporting, AI assists in deep diving into big data, quantifying the occurrence of events and revealing insights that were once obscured. With checks for biases and paired with human discernment, AI tools can condense mountains of documents into precise narratives at breathtaking speeds. This melding of human intuition and machine precision puts journalism on the brink of becoming a faster, yet more analytic profession. I think that's a good statement. I think the um, relationship of, of people's precision, um, I've, I've first-handedly seen AI going through massive amounts of data and finding very meaningful answers. And if you don't believe it, go to ChatGPT and ask a deep question and see what it produces. It's kind of amazing. The same with DALI and some of the painting uh, programs like uh, Stability AI and similar. Um, so I think it's a fair answer. Uh, it will shift the job of journalists. I think the fundamental uh, hypothesis behind it that a journalist really seeks deep new information and tries to relay this information uh, to a broad audience, that'll stay the same. But the methods of doing it will probably shift. Well, you've mentioned Udacity a couple of times, a company you formed, and I want to quote you on education before we talk about Udacity. The basic problem we face is that 19th century rules for education and employment no longer apply in the 21st century. This means that our tradition-bound higher education system must adapt. We need to transition from a one-time education society to a lifelong education society. So your degree in Stanford, was it worthwhile? 
Well, first of all, I have no degree at Stanford. I was only a professor. I apologize I to you. From the University of Bonn, which at the time was ranked at the very bottom of all computer science departments in Bonn. <laughs> um, I started um, Udacity literally to democratize education. I felt in the United States, we have some of the best institutions in the world, including Stanford, where I was teaching at the time, but they're very exclusive. They're very limited. Like they admit 500 students when China has 20 million students thirsty and hungry to get the same access that these 500 Stanford students will get. So I went out and said, hey, let's open up Stanford. I offered a course. It was the very first MOOC, massive open online course that I started, where I shared a Stanford course with the world and 160,000 students signed up within like a few weeks. 160,000 students is many more than you could find on Stanford's campus. It's like 10 times as many as I would normally teach in my lifetime of education at Stanford. And I felt really good about it. Of the 20, 160,000, 23,000 finished, we compared them to the top Stanford students. And the top 412 people finishers were not at Stanford. The, the best Stanford student ranked number 413. And that to me was a message is that there's an amazing number of people in the world who are every bit as capable as the best Stanford students, but for whatever reason, are not part of the system. Maybe it's demographics, maybe it's age, maybe it's affluency, whatever it is, they're not part of the system. So I saw as my mission, I see a mission today, can we democratize access to the best education in the world? And the answer is we can. So we have, Udacity has a massive, massive footprint. For example, in the Middle East, Egypt, for example, has spent significant resources to use Udacity to teach people to become freelancers. As a freelancer, you bring hard currency into Egypt. After one year of work, we found that the average freelancer brings about five times the hard currency into Egypt and it costs Egypt to train them. That was just, uh, just one year. It was completely amazing. It's like hundreds of millions of people worldwide by now. It's kind of amazing to see uh, how we can influence and change the world and really make access to education affordable to so many more people. Well, back to our chat GP tweet. GPT critical questions for Sebastian Thrun. And again, this is from ChatGPT. Some critics argue that Udacity's nano degree programs prioritize profit over educational quality. How do you respond to such claims? Um, I give a data point. We took the same program into Georgia Tech and around 2013 started an online master's program at Georgia Tech in computer science where the degree is indistinguishable from the degree you get on campus. Uh, so you get a piece of paper that in the end, whether you're online through a MOOC and Udacity or whether you're on campus, has the same value to your future life. And we also measured that the quality of education is equivalent. The only big difference is the online degree costs $6,000 versus the on-campus degree costs $45,000. Why is there such a big difference? Well, it's completely obvious. It's much easier to teach online to reach more people than cramming them into a big classroom physically. Uh, so as a result, we now have over 10,000 active students in this one master's program only. It's the biggest in the United States. Um, it's a big uh, impact on the US economy. Some economists believe it supplies about 8% of computer scientists in this country. I don't know whether that's correct or not. Uh, but it shows that with modern technology, uh, you can make education much more accessible and affordable. 
Now, to those Luddites who believe we're putting profit ahead of um, education, it's hard to argue against it because at some point education does cost money and a company has to take money in, not just education, but also the engineering behind it, the content behind it, the management behind it. And Udacity, as I mentioned, is profitable. So we are obviously saving a few of those bucks to ourselves for a rainy day. Um, but we are so much cheaper than so many existing nonprofits. Um, where existing university system today charge so much more for a degree than we charge. A typical non-degree is about, call it 2,000 US dollars. A typical degree in an American institution is like between 10 and 50,000, maybe 100,000 um, dollars. So I think rather than pointing the finger and say, oh, you're more expensive, you're more greedy than us, let's all work together and invent new technologies to reach more people. Of the many, many billions of young people that exist today, the existing higher education system in the United States only reaches a small sliver. I would challenge every university president, can you admit 10 million Chinese students, 10 million Indonesian students, 10 million Indian students? And if you did this, why wouldn't you become the most important university ever lived? I'm, I'm a positive person. I see the possibility. And I think with the audacity, we've done a tiny step in the right direction, I hope. Well, let's close with this little bit of video from Stephen Hawking in 2014 and get Sebastian Thrun's reaction. The primitive forms of artificial intelligence we already have have proved very useful. But I think the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. Once humans develop artificial intelligence, it would take off on its own and redesign itself at an ever-increasing rate. Humans, who are limited by slow biological evolution, couldn't compete and would be superseded. Sebastian Thrun, final comment. I think there's some possibility that this might exist in the distant future. Elon Musk and others have warned the same way. In the immediate future, there's so much more opportunity to use the technology to make our work better, our lives better, connect our people better, that I would put this right now on the shelf, keep my eyes and ears open, make sure we don't give too much responsibility and capability to these machines, and utilize the good NAI today. And, and as Sebastian Thrun opened our program. Most things haven't been invented yet. Mr. Thrun, we appreciate your spending an hour with C-SPAN. It's my absolute pleasure, Peter. Thank you so much. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast on our C-SPAN Now app.